So last, last Sunday, I think it was, uh, we had an interesting thing happen in our house because I don't know um, if anybody's noticed this, but I'm old. And so... Um, <laughs> no, so Jim noticed. Okay, good. I don't know why you pick on me, man. What is up with that? <laughs> anyway, it has been a long time since we have had like the pitter-patter of little feet in our house, let alone that high-pitched, giggly, squealy sound that the kids make when they're running around chasing each other, right? But now I have grandkids. So we get that high-pitched noise back in our house now and then, and it's pretty great because my grandkids have decided that the design of our house was ideal for them because the way the kitchen and the dining room and the entryway uh, and the living room will all attach, there's a racetrack there, right? <laughs> and so they figured that out, and so we're all just there um, playing a game and enjoying time at the table, and the kids are doing this high-pitched squeal, ha-ha-ha, little giggly thing, and they're running through this racetrack, and they're chasing each other around, and it's just kind of great, right? You're just, I think their parents don't think it's great, but the grandparents <laughs> really like it, and, and you're hearing this giggling and this squealing, and it's really great, and the, and the sound of feet, and all of a sudden, thud. It was a very markedly different sound. And it was followed by an even higher pitch sound. And this was not a happy sound. And my granddaughter had gone running through the hallway, turned a corner on the slippery um, you know, tile, and hit her head on the corner of the granite countertop. Oh, man. And you know, there's a, there's, you can tell, right? As a parent or a grandparent, you know that Kids cry a lot, and usually it's meaningless, right? But then every now and then you hear that kind of cry, and that is a different cry. Everybody from the table jumps up, and we're all headed. It's like, oh, my goodness, what happened? And she's laying on the ground screaming, holding her head, and, and we're running to get ice and trying to comfort her and doing all this kind of stuff. And thank God she's fine, and, and it was okay. But, you know, there's that moment there where, where you're just terrified, right? Because they go from having this incredible fun moment and all of a sudden, in a second, it is dramatically changed, right? Why? Probably because their parents never told them to be careful, right? <laughs> probably, probably their grandparents never said, hey, don't run in the kitchen, right? You think that's why? No, they've been told a thousand times to be careful. They know to be careful. But when you're in the midst of your playing, you're distracted. And that's a perfect illustration for us. We may not always be in the midst of playing, but most of our lives are spent, in my opinion, distracted from the things that matter the most. And so we have this loving father who says to us, Hey, be careful, you know? And, and, and as a kid, you get so tired of hearing your parents say, be careful. Seems like every time my, one of my kids leaves the house with car keys in their hands, I say, be careful. And I'm sure they're sick of hearing it. They probably roll their eyes. And I'm like, well, I have been to three totaled cars on the freeway for three kids. So I'm going to keep saying, be careful, right? Be careful, be careful, be careful. 
And God, our loving Father, is kind enough and wise enough and caring enough that he says it to us again and again and again. Hey, be careful. There's a trap over there. Watch your step. Hey, be careful. You're getting really close to the edge over there. Be careful. Watch where you're going. Hey, be careful. There's real trouble over here. Be careful. Don't just aimlessly walk in a distracted manner, but you have to walk wisely. You have to actually be careful how you walk. In our study of Ephesians, Paul's been telling us that as followers of Jesus, we need to be imitators of Jesus Christ, and we need to live differently. That we're not going to do things just the same as we've always done. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to walk wisely. And today we come to this really important passage in Ephesians chapter 5 where it's just the voice of a loving father and he's saying to us, hey, be careful. Be careful. Be careful how you walk. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, you probably got it on your cell phone or something or look on with the person next to you. We're in the book of Ephesians, right after Galatians and before Philippians in your New Testament. We've been here for months, so you should be able to find it. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. We're just going to look at two verses here this morning. Therefore, our loving God says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. I've never been in the military. I have tremendous respect for everybody who served. I, I never had to fight in a war. But I have on many times have had to navigate a minefield. So when I was a kid growing up, um, we had this house with a swimming pool in the backyard. You know, it's a typical Southern California backyard with a built-in swimming pool and concrete all around, right? And it was great because... My friends and I, in the summertime, we were in that pool every day, usually multiple times a day. And in those days, we were not aware that it was possible to use a towel more than once, right? So every friend gets a towel. My mom washed like 40 towels a day every summer, and we just were in that pool all the time. There was another thing in our backyard besides the pool. It was almost as big as the pool. It was our St. Bernard. We had a St. Bernard that weighed well over 200 pounds. It was a massive, gigantic dog, right? And, and slobber hanging from his lips at all times. And we used to love the fact that he would shake his head like this and these spit things would come flying at you and you have to do this, you know? And, and we would go swimming in this pool and we'd swim from one side to the other and the dog would run around to the other side and bark and we'd swim and he'd run around to this side and bark. And, and he just, he had the best time when we would swim out there. But we weren't always out there swimming. There, when you have a, a, a dog in the backyard, there's evidence of a dog. <laughs> you follow me? Yeah? And when it's a St. Bernard, it's indisputable evidence. <laughs> and, so, and so, of course, it's my job to clean all of this up, and I don't do it. And, and my parents are on my case, hey, clean that up, clean. Aren't you embarrassed when you bring your friends over? No, not really, <laughs> right? Clean it up, clean it up. It stinks back there. Ah, well, I'll get to it. I'll get to it later. 
But then what would happen would be, we'd be playing a game in the pool, the ball flies out of the pool, you go running up the steps of the pool to go get the ball, when suddenly there is a warm and squishy sensation in your foot. And in that moment, you think to yourself, why didn't I clean this up? Or better yet, why didn't I just watch where I was walking? Why didn't I just watch where I was walking? God says, listen, I know where the minds are. I know where the spots are that you have to be really careful about. Walk wisely. Be careful how you walk. Watch where you're going. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Now, we've run across this again and again in the book of Ephesians. We see it in all of Paul's letters. It's like his favorite metaphor. He uses this all the time. He talks about the way that we walk. And when he talks about the way that we walk, what does he mean by that? He's talking about how we live, right? He's saying the choices that you make, the places that you go, the attitudes that you have, the things you get involved in. Be careful how you walk. Walking is a metaphor in the New Testament for living your life. And we're supposed to live our lives not as unwise people, but as wise. He's saying, hey, walk in wisdom. Let me tell you a sad story. There's a guy named Michael Carroll. He's a British guy. He's a garbage collector. And uh, on his way home from work one day, he stopped off to get a beer, and he bought a lottery ticket, and he won $15.7 million dollars. 15, now, it was in British pounds, but it translates to $15.7 million. And overnight, he was a rich guy. And so he did what people do when they win the lottery. He bought a mansion. Now, I'm not talking about a mansion like Beverly Hills or Bradbury. I'm talking about a mansion in the British countryside, an estate, right? <laughs> Something like a castle. And... The, the kind of place with the giant lawns and the half a mile long driveway that leads up to the house. He bought one of those kind of places. And then he began to throw parties. And suddenly this guy who didn't know anybody and nobody cared about him, he was in the news, he was famous. Celebrities were coming to his parties every weekend, big party. And he did it up right. Through that process, he developed a cocaine habit turned into a crack habit, and he was spending $3,000 a day on crack cocaine. He bought sports cars, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Porsches, that sort of thing, and uh, he had a place to drive them because he had a track built around his estate so that he could race on this track. And he would take his new Ferrari out and he would get it up to 200 miles an hour and he'd go around the track and inevitably crash it. He was usually high. And when he would crash the car, he would have somebody tow it to the infield of the track and he would go down and buy a Lamborghini. And he just let these cars rust in his yard, the crashed ones, and he would just replace them with new ones. See where this story's going? He had uh, this, this signature thing Gold. If you see the picture, this is a picture of the real guy. See all the gold? Just gold, gold, gold. He was always buying gold. That was his thing. He was the gold guy. And there was lots and lots and lots of prostitutes. There was lots and lots and lots of alcohol. 
until, of course, after 10 years, as his money began to disappear, his friends began to disappear as well. Big surprise. And by 2012, 10 years after he won his lottery ticket, he was on public assistance, completely bankrupt, and he was arrested for stealing a sandwich from a convenience store because he was hungry. Wow. How does that happen? <laughs> we have heard that ver we've heard some version of that story before, right? We've all heard all these lottery stories. It doesn't go well for people, right? I read this week that fully 70% of people who won lottery jackpots, big, big, big lotteries, uh, fully 70% of them said their life was much better before the lottery than after. And most of them do end up bankrupt. Families are ruined. All kinds of stuff happens. But, but how do you just flitter away that kind of money? Like, if you're given that kind of a treasure, how do you just waste it? Just pour it down the drain like that? I started thinking, you know, you and I, every one of us has been given a bigger treasure than that. We've been given time. There's nothing more valuable. We've been given time and lots of it so far. And yet, if you ask yourself, how much of your time have you been wasting? Make the most of your time. The days are evil. And you think, I've been handed this treasure chest of time, opportunities. Where did it all go? Where's it been? How are you using your time? Are you investing it wisely or are you throwing it away? Look again, verse 16. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. It's amazing to discover how Americans spend their time. Nowadays, we live in a statistical age. You can get statistics on anything. So if you're the average American, here's what I learned about you. You will spend six months of your life waiting at red lights. You will spend five years of your life waiting in line somewhere. You are spending, on average, 11 hours per day right now interacting with digital media. 11 hours a day, that's for adults, not kids. I can't even imagine what it is for them. The average American spends 21 years of his life in front of a television. And we spend 25 years of our lives, on average, asleep. That is a whole bunch of unproductive time, isn't it? That is a whole lot of unproductive time. And by the way, we tend to measure time in terms of minutes, seconds, days, weeks, years, that sort of thing. But in Ephesians 5, Paul's not talking about time that way. There's different Greek words for time. The, the, the most common Greek word for time is chronos, from which we get chronological and and it has to do with minutes and seconds and days and weeks and that sort of thing. But that's not the word he uses here. The word he uses here is kairos. And kairos means opportune moments or opportunities. With each moment of your life, you're given various opportunities. We all make choices of what we're going to do with our time. Those are opportunities. You're not, you're not 
wasting seconds or minutes or hours, you're wasting opportunities. Every one of those chunks of time represents an opportunity. We talk about using time and wasting time. We talk about managing time. But I got news for you. You can't manage time. Time is going to click away at the same predictable rate for you as it does for everybody else, and there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot manage time, but you can manage yourself. And you can manage what you're doing with those opportunities that that time affords you. It is uh, Labor Day weekend. That means that essentially this is the unofficial end of summer, right? Summer is now kaput. Tomorrow's Labor Day, so I don't want to see any of you wearing white after tomorrow. That's, okay? (laughs) Summer is basically behind us. What'd you do with your summer? What'd you do with your summer opportunities? Summer's kind of a weird season, isn't it? For most of us, things change in the summer. If you're a student, you're out of school. If you're a teacher or anybody that works in the schools, you're out of school for the summer. A lot of us take vacations during the summer. We have people come and, and spend time with us during the summer. A lot of times we, we try to, you know, have more leisure doing this during the summer, barbecues and picnics and all that kind of stuff. Well, summer has come and gone. And now we're at Labor Day. And what got me thinking is, you know what? I'm pretty sure yesterday was Easter, right? And the day before that was Christmas. Where in the world have all of these opportunities gone? So the bad news is you're never going to get those opportunities again. Opportunities to serve, opportunities to give, opportunities to love, opportunities to pray, opportunities to worship. You're never going to get those opportunities again. Those seconds have ticked away. The good news is that every moment represents new opportunities. So what does it look like to make the most of your time? I'm going to just try to make it incredibly simple. If you're taking notes, write a couple of things down right here. A person who makes the most of his time lives like this. He says, I will not put off my next step of obedience. See, one of the biggest things that messes us up and gets us off track as followers of God is not that we don't know God's will. Man, so many times I've thought to myself or heard somebody say, oh, I just wish I knew God's will in this. You know what? 98% of the time, I know exactly what God's will is. The question is whether I want to do it. And so when God teaches you something from his word, when, when you're in prayer and you're, you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit that, hey, I need to do this, or, or you're, you're going about your day and, and you bump into somebody and... and you think, ah, I should stop and talk to them. Those are opportunities. And when the Lord puts something on your heart to do, whether it's a command from Scripture, which we've been seeing over and over in Ephesians, or whether it's just a prompting from the Holy Spirit, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is just put it off. We nod our heads and we say, yeah, I'm going to do that. We put off our next step of obedience. Another thing you want to make sure is that you don't waste your divine appointments. See, when we think of time as opportunities, then we think of interactions with people and situations not as happenstance, but as divine appointments. What an interesting thought that perhaps God has put you where you are in a given moment because he has a plan for your life in that place, in that moment. And then he's given you the resources to actually be a difference maker in that moment. 
Because tomorrow is not promised. We say things like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to really focus on my family. I know my family needs my attention. Uh, I've been working a lot lately, but, but I'm, I just need like six months of these 14-hour days, and then this project will be done. I'll get, the, I'll get the promotion, and finally I can relax and spend more time with my family. When I get that done, I'm telling you, that's, I'm going to take the kids to the park. I'm going to coach the Little League team. I'm going to do all of that stuff. And you know what? You're a liar. You're not going to do it in six months. Because when you finish this project, you think there might be another project. When you, when you get over this hump, you think there might be another hill that lies ahead of you. I mean, we've walked long enough to know this, right? What your priorities are now is probably what they're going to be in six months unless you make a change. And you have to decide, I'm going to make the most of my divine appointments. To say, you know what? I'm going to cut out this bad habit. In fact, this would be a great New Year's resolution for January. You know, it's September, it gives me like three, four months, and then January comes along. This would be a great New Year's resolution. I'm going I'm to knock off this bad habit starting the first of the year. I always love January 2nd because that means it's 364 days before I have to make a New Year's resolution again, right? We love to put that stuff off. I'm going to start making my relationship with God the priority it's supposed to be. I'm going to spend time alone with God, prayer and in His Word, but, you know, tomorrow is a really early day. I think I'll start the day after tomorrow. I'm going to start giving generously. As soon as I get my finances under control, man, I'm going to start being generous. I'm going to be the one that helps people. I'm going to be the one that supports ministry. In fact, I'm going to get involved in ministry. Pastors always talking about how we're all ministers. We all have gifts. You know what? I'm not just going to sit and watch anymore. I'm going to get involved in ministry. As soon as I get a little more knowledgeable in the Bible and a little bit more mature, and I have more to offer. Some of us have become really good, what I call, ameners. You know, it's not that we disagree with God's word. It's not that we disagree with truth. Even the Holy Spirit convicts us. And we go, you know, amen. You know, a lot of you, as we've been going through Ephesians, the Lord has been speaking to you and teaching you stuff out of the word of God. And you've been going, amen, that is so true. That is so good. That is so right. We hear the pastor preach about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And we think, amen. And we mean it. We just never get around to it. We read in Ephesians 4 that we're all supposed to be involved in ministry, and we go, amen, but we never get around to it, and the clock, it just keeps ticking, and the opportunities just keep sliding away. We read that God commands us to put away all bitterness and to forgive people, and we go, you know what, um, I'm just, I, I'm going to do that, but I'm just not there yet. I'm just not ready to forgive. This Friday, I did what I've started doing quite a bit of on my day off. I take Fridays off, and, and I got in my car, and I headed east, like I've been doing on a lot of Fridays. Drove for an hour and a half due east, got to Palm Springs, because that's where my dad lives in a care facility now, and he's dealing with Alzheimer's and the dementia that comes with that and his body is beginning to break down and he's starting to have a pretty hard time of it. And uh, he was in Michigan the last few years. I had to fly to see him then. So now 
on my day off, well, as often as I can, I get in my car and I head to Palm Springs. And I take him to lunch, spend time with him, take him shopping for stuff he needs, talk to him. And it's no fun at all. It's not enjoyable. It's hard. Hard to look at him like that. It's hard to sit and have the same conversation 12 times over the same meal. It's hard to listen to the delusional stories that he tells of things he thinks are happening in his life and are not actually happening. It's hard to have the conversation with him again to explain his situation to him again so that he understands it just for a moment until five minutes later he doesn't understand it again. It is hard that he makes a mess. It is hard that you have to clean up after him. It's hard that he's a shadow of the man that raised me. It's hard. But I'm going to keep getting in my car and I'm going to keep going east. Because he's 85. And he's not a healthy 85. And he doesn't have much time left. And I am going to love my dad. With the time I've got. You got to make the most of your time. Let me give a word of advice to young parents. Last week, my children were toddlers. And now my grandchildren are toddlers. The clock clock keeps ticking. Every moment that is wasted is a moment that you will never get back. Turn to the book book of James. It's to the back of your Bible right after Hebrews. Just a few books to the right. Find the little book of James and go to chapter 4. James has this tremendous wisdom and he has this tremendous ability inspired by the Holy Spirit to cut to the chase and remove all the fluff. He seems to not care whether or not he offends you. In fact, it's almost as if he enjoys it. And he is always correcting us. And and if you go to James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, listen to what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's like a foggy day. Like that little two-foot-high wall of mist that sits above your lawn on some cool mornings. And as the sun comes up, where does it go? It just disappears. It's a vapor. Here one moment, gone the next moment. And he says, your life is like that. And, and God, with his perspective of eternity, he gets it, right? Because I know that at my age, I can look at a young child and go, hey man, enjoy these childhood years that you're trying to rush through because they go by fast and they roll their eyes and think, man, these old guys. And I think I feel that way toward God sometimes. You know, my life's like a vapor. He's got the perspective of eternity. He gets it. We had better work hard at making the most of our opportunities. Because as Ephesians says, in verse five, chapter 5, verse 16, the days are evil. And the Ephesians understood that. Paul didn't have to explain that. Make the most of your time, for the days are evil. 
I, I talked about this way back when we began our study in the book of Ephesians, and we talked about the culture at Ephesus at that time. We talked about the depravity that was there. We talked about the immorality that reigned. There was a giant temple there, the temple to Diana or Artemis, as she's known. And she was the fertility goddess. And so there was all these sexual rituals that took place at this temple. And it was the, the, the worst of immorality that you can imagine citywide. And there was sorcery and there was witchcraft and, and demonic arts. And the people worshipped all kinds of God. The number one industry in the whole city was the making of little statues of gods, idols, that people would take home and put on their mantle and bow down to and worship. That was Ephesus. He said, the days are evil. They said, uh-huh. Just like we say today. Uh-huh. I watch the news. I know the days are evil. Soon in Ephesus, not long after this writing, the persecution was going to get ratcheted up and Christians were going to start getting put to death by the Romans. They were going to hang Christians from poles on the streets and light them on fire and light the streets at night by burning Christians. They were going to feed Christians to the lions. They were going to go through and slaughter gatherings of Christians who were gathering together, just like we hear happening around the world in different places today. In Revelation chapter 2, just about you know, 30 years after Paul writes this, John sees this vision, and he gets to see heaven opened up before his eyes, and he sees the glorified Christ, and Jesus gives him many messages. And, and some of those messages are, are to specific churches, and in Revelation chapter 2, you can go read it this week on your own, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says to the Ephesian church, I have a message for you. He says, I'm proud of you. I'm summarizing here. He says, I'm proud of you. You've kept your doctrine right. You understand truth and you do not put up with falsehood. These false teachers come in and you don't put up with it. And you have persevered and you have been faithful and you have stayed the course even when things have gotten difficult. Good job, Ephesians. But then he says this, I have one thing against you. You've forgotten your first love. You've left Jesus. In all of your Christianity, you have somehow omitted Christ. And he says, if you don't repent, and you don't come back to me, and you don't make me that priority, I'm going to take you away as a church. And only a few decades later, the church at Ephesus ceased to exist. And there has never been a Christian church there since, to this day. Isn't that awful? These people had their doctrine right. They persevered. They hung in there. They didn't put up with false teaching. I mean, they were doing the Christianity thing really well. It's just that they left Jesus behind. And they ceased to exist. There was persecution that was coming. There's a, there's a book called A Distant Grief. Maybe you've heard of it. It tells the story of Pastor Kefa Sempagni of Uganda. He was pastoring there in Uganda in the late 60s and early 70s. And when Idi Amin rose to power in general, there was a, most Ugandans were thrilled because they were getting rid of a bad government and they were 
hopeful for the future when they didn't realize that Amin was going to be a terrible, murderous dictator and that the next decade was going to be the worst in Uganda's history. He would send people into villages and just wipe them out. And he targeted leaders, particularly religious leaders. So Christian leaders were just disappearing, never to be seen again. And finally, Pastor Kefa and his wife and children, they had to flee. And they fled to the United States. And he writes about this in his book, A Distant Grief. And he tells the story of when they had finally resituated in Philadelphia. And after they had been in the States for a while, one morning his wife said to him, today, or tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to go get the kids some clothes. And there was just a brief awkward silence before they both burst into tears. And they realized simultaneously that it was the first time either one of them had dared to speak the word tomorrow in years. Because of the persecution. Because of the fact that they were keenly aware that their life was just a vapor. What are you putting off till tomorrow? Because the days, my friends, the days are evil. So let's get practical. If we want to make the most of our time, how do we do that? I'm going to give you three things real quick and we'll wrap it up. First is this. Invest in eternal things. Oh my goodness, the amount of time and energy and money and emotion and resources that we pour into things that will not matter in a month. And God says there are things that are eternal and they need your attention. If you're going to live for Jesus, you're going to invest in eternal things. What's eternal? God is eternal. God's word is eternal. The souls of men are everlasting. How about we invest there? Invest in eternal things. Smart people, when they're making a financial investment or buying a house or a car or something like that, man, they do their homework. You don't, you don't, just, you don't just decide what stock to invest in by watching the ticker tape go by and you say, the first one I see that has two initials from my name, that's the one. That's not how you pick a stock. You meet with professionals, you do your homework, you do the study, you read the prospectus, and you decide how to split up your money. That's what a wise person does when they're investing. Even, even something as small as a car, you buy a car. Most of us never spend more, more money than we spend on a car, on any one item. Man, you better read consumer reports. You better compare the warranties and the financing and all of those kinds of things before you make a decision. Listen, I grew up in the car business. My dad owned car dealerships, and I, I was selling cars from the age of 14. I used to train salesmen how to sell cars. Here's what I told them. Buying a car is not an intellectual decision. It's an emotional decision. You better sell it before they leave while they're still excited. People walk in and buy cars. Dumb people. Guys, do not buy a car when you step on the lot. Go home, do the research, pray about it, think about it, get some advice, and then get the best deal that you can. That's what you do on something even as simple as a car. We're talking about eternal things here. How much attention does eternal things get from me? How much of my time and energy do I spend praying about things that have eternal significance? How much of my time and energy do I spend working on things 
that have eternal significance? How much of my time and energy do I spend planning things that have eternal significance? What have you been investing in? Second thing, love people. Invest in eternal things and love people. It's so important we put it up on the wall. We don't want you to forget it. Love people. Nothing in this world matters more to God than people. Love people. And, and all these people, you're surrounded by them. <laughs> Most of them probably drive you nuts. You're surrounded by them. They're in your house. They're at your work. They're in your neighborhood. They're in your schools. There's people everywhere. Most of them are on the 210 freeway most of the time, I'm convinced. <laughs> People everywhere. Huh. It's funny, I just say that to joke, but you know what? I, I get on the, in the afternoon to come home. If I get on the freeway at 6 o'clock at night up here at Mount Olive, I am going to sit a long time just getting on the freeway, right? You guys know you live here, right? Doesn't it blow your mind how many people won't let one car in? Guys, listen, I'm not kidding. You want a simple way to love people? Just wave them in. Let them in. Just stop for a second. Let the guy come out of the driveway instead of waiting for 80 more cars to pass. Right? You're not going to get home any later, but you're going to bless his day. Love people. It's not complex. It's not expensive, usually. Just love people. You only get so many opportunities with people hurting people, confused people, messed up people, needy people, and every one of them, beautiful people created in the image of God. Just a couple weeks ago, I had this experience, and it's not an unusual experience. There was a homeless man who was uh, sleeping out in the back of the church, and uh, so I went out to talk to him, and I introduced myself, and I brought him a bottle of water, shook his hand, asked him his name, just talked to him for a minute. When we got done talking, here's what he said to me. He looked deep in my eyes, and this is what he said. He said, thanks for treating me like a human being. I just gave him a bottle of water and shook his hand. I didn't wipe it off when I took my hand away. He's not used to that. There's hurting people. They need to be loved. They're not all homeless. Some of them are in executive offices with big windows and fancy desks. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. While you have opportunity. Make the most of your opportunities with people. Take every opportunity you have because tomorrow it may be gone. Love somebody today. Encourage them today. Bless them today. Forgive somebody Today, share with somebody today. Invest in eternal things, love people. And finally, and the most foundational of all, draw near to God. If you want to make the most of your time, draw near to God. Remember, Paul once had everything. He once had power and influence and wealth and uh, reputation and position and all of those things. What did he do? Go to Philippians chapter uh, 3. If you, if you know where Ephesians is, it's next to Ephesians, just to the right of Ephesians. Go to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to pick it up in, in Philippians chapter 3, 
7. Very well-known passage. But whatever things were gained to me, Paul says, after giving a list of all the things that he had, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I had everything, Paul says. And I realize it's just a a stinking pile of rubbish compared to the one thing, knowing him. Guys, we want systems and, um, you know, things, uh, rules to follow. We want religious systems that tell us what jumps, what hoops to jump through and and what, um, what traditions to hold on to. We're really good with all that kind of stuff. And God says, I think you're missing the whole point. It's about me. It's just about knowing God. It's about knowing him, loving him, being intimate with him, having a relationship with him. That's what he sent Jesus to die for. And we're worried about our portfolios. And we're worried about our reputations. And listen, I'm not saying don't plan. I'm not saying don't be wise. I'm not saying any of that. The scripture tells us to do those things. It's just a matter of how you value things. What are the important things in the world? What are the important things in this life? Paul was willing to give up everything to know Christ more. After all, that's why he was created. And that's why you were created. Fall is upon us. Back to school, back from vacations, Back to a lot of the um, opportunities at, the, at church with the grace groups and women's Bible studies, men's Bible, all that stuff starting up. What will you do this fall to make the most of your opportunities? To know him more. To love people well. And to draw near to God. And the way that you answer those questions is going to determine whether you just pass another season by and say, what happened to the fall? Or whether you make the most of your time, for the days are evil. There's a lot more I'd like to say, but I'm out of time. Let's pray.